Kate, amazing. You did so good. Give Kate a round of applause. She did great. Kate, can I just say, uh, you're, you're part of a fine tradition today. Uh, we've had that reading three times today, and in each time, we've had outstanding readers who have done it so that it actually makes sense. So thank you for your care and preparation in, uh, in reading that for us. Uh, it's really good. Uh, so that's the passage that's in front of us. All easy, isn't it? Can I remind you at the start of this sermon that we will have a Q&A at the end. And so if at any point I fail to be clear, which is entirely possible, my third time today, uh, you can ask a question and I will attempt to clarify. So if you've got a Caring Connect card, you might want to jot your question down as we go through, but I would welcome those at the end to clarify stuff. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us and then we'll jump in. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful part of your word. Uh, Thank you that it has been read clearly for us. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you might use this word, this living word of yours, and challenge us where we need challenging. Change us, Father, and help us to trust Jesus more, for we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, well, I want to start tonight uh, with a sporting analogy, and I know, I know, you know, but bear with me, it'll make sense, I hope. All right, Uh, does anyone know what side this is? The Wallabies, okay, very good. Or the Wobblies, if you're a fan. Um, so uh, what do we know about the Wallabies? Well, when they play New Zealand, it, they lose. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, we get more of this kind of picture uh, when, they, uh, when they play New Zealand. They haven't won against New Zealand, haven't won the series against New Zealand for 15 years. So my question would be, if they're going to play New Zealand, uh, what do you expect? I've failed, I failed in my expectations so much that I now I can't watch it anymore. I can't, I can't see the carnage. Um, so what do you expect? You look at the track record and I decide I just can't. I just can't. I know what the outcome is going to be. In contrast to that, the other week I told you I was a Liverpool fan, right? Okay, and they have started the year extremely well, or the season extremely well. Um, they've won six in a row, including last night. So they're full of talent, they're full of running, they're entertaining what do you expect? It's going to be great. I want to watch it. I want to see what's going to happen. I think good things are going to come. One team, expectation. Another team, different expectations. Here's the question. What team are you on when it comes to sin? What team are you on when it comes to sin? In other words, what's your expectation? If we were to have an arm wrestle between you and sin... Are you backing the Wallabies or Liverpool? What expectation do you have of this battle? I think for many of us, when we listen to the words that Kate brought us from Romans chapter 7, we hear this. uh, Let's have a look. uh, Chapter 7, verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, I think for many of us, we hear this and we would say, that's me. This sounds like me. But tonight, I I want to challenge you and suggest that it's not you. And more than that, it can't be you. Okay, why? Why can't it? Well, I'm going to suggest tonight, although that sounds a lot like us... I want us to have a look at this passage with fresh eyes. Some of you will know it. Some of you will love it. Some of you will know it very well. I want us to look at it again 
and consider, does the language that occurs in this passage occur elsewhere in the letter to the Romans? And is the theme that's developed here, is it seen in other places? In short, what I want to do tonight with you is to have a look at the context for chapter 7 so that we might understand what's actually being said here. So what's the context for chapter 7? You guys are going to love this. What's the context for chapter 7? Well, the context for chapter 7, which is about law and flesh, the context for chapter 7 is chapter 6. Nice, that's why it was read to us tonight. Chapter 6 is about grace and the law. The other bit of context for uh, chapter 7 is chapter... You guys are catching the, uh, the idea here. Uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8 is about flesh and the spirit. And I want to suggest to you by looking at chapter 8 and chapter 6 that we'll come to understand what's going on in chapter 7 at, in Romans. So it's going to take a bit of work to get what's going on and then I want to apply it. Bear with me. It'll hopefully uh, be worth it. We see that chapter 7 is about law and the flesh, and there are three questions about the law that Paul is dealing with. Let's have a look at them one at a time and see if we can understand what's going on in this chapter. The first question we see is in chapter 7, verse 1. If you've got it in front of you, that will be helpful. Chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. First of all, it's worth noting, he says, I'm speaking to people who know the law. He's assuming that they have a Jewish background, that they have some understanding of God's law. And he says, don't you know that law only has authority over living people? Well, that kind of makes sense. And he says in verse 6, when he speaks to those who are listening, but now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What's he saying? The question is, don't you know that the law only has authority over those who live? And his answer is to say, we have died. We have died. The law can't have authority over us because we died. When did you die? Thinking, I don't know, it depends how long this sermon goes. It might be tonight. When did we die? If you remember back to chapter 6, we remember that when we were baptized, we were buried with Jesus. We've spiritually died by being joined into the life and the death of Jesus. So when did you die? When you chose Jesus as your king and were baptized into his story. So you died with him. There's a second question. We can see it here in chapter 7, verse 7. It says, well, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? In other words, if the law was connected to our death, is the law sinful? There's an answer to that question, and he goes, he goes and says it in verse 7, certainly not, but he expands it and says this in verses 8 and 9. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So the question is, is the law sinful? The answer is no, the law isn't sinful, but it provokes sin in me. You think, okay, that's all very technical. What's going on? Let me give you a sign to explain. Now, can you see what this sign is telling us to do? What's the first one telling us to do on the, uh, the left there? 
Don't walk on the grass. What do we want to do when we see that sign? You're terrible. But that's what we think, isn't it? Why can't we walk on the grass? Is it special grass? What if I put a foot on the grass? I, I, could, I, could, just, I could just cut across the corner. That wouldn't be a problem, would it? We're terrible. The sign says, don't walk on the grass. The first thing we think to do is, I could walk on the grass. Or maybe the sign says, wet paint, don't touch. First thing I want to do, is it really wet? Okay, what's the point here? The point here is that sin is provoked by the law. So the law says, don't, and what do we do? I could try it. So Paul says, the law isn't sinful, but the law provokes sin in us. Can you see that? It produces sin in us. So the law isn't bad, it's good, but it has a bad effect on us. That leads us to our third question in this chapter. In verse 13, we see it. Did that which is good then become death to me? In other words, it provoked sin in me. God says that sin is worthy of death. Did the law kill me? He answers it straight away. By no means, he says in verse 13, nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. In other words, the law reveals sin. It shows what sin is, and that revelation condemns me. Let me give you an example. This is from Wollongong, land of freedom and joy. Uh, This is Pioneer Park in Wollongong, okay? You could have thought, I've gone to the park to have fun. You could have thought that would be a mistake. Because when you get to Pioneer Park, how many things are you told you can't do there? Twelve. Okay, there's twelve things. Now, you didn't know that you couldn't do those things, and so you were having fun. But on it, it actually says there's a maximum penalty of up to $500 for having fun in the park. I mean, for not doing any of those 12 things in the park. So so here's the thing. What the law does is it tells you that's sinful, and it tells you what the penalty is. It's a good law, but it condemns us, and it leads us to death. So what's going on in this passage? Well, if you're trying to be right by obeying the law, you're in big trouble. In fact, you would say with Paul in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? In other words, if you want to get right with God by obeying the law, you're in big problems. You've got big trouble. You're never going to meet the standard. And what's more, by looking at the law a lot, you're going to want to break it more. You're trapped and you're condemned. Okay, fair enough. That's what's happening in chapter 7. But what about all that stuff that sounded so much like me? Tell me about that. Well, let's have a look. What I want to do in this section is go through the bits of the language that sound like you and I wrestling with sin. And I want to use the context of either chapter 6 or chapter 8 to help us see whether that language should be applied to us as believers. Let's start by looking at chapter 7 and verses 14 and 15. Paul says there, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. What's he saying? Paul is saying here, 
This person who's crying out is a slave to sin. Is that you and I? Is that a fair description of us? Well, let's look at the context. If we go back to chapter 6, here's what chapter 6 said. Chapter 6 said in verse 18, You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It can't be a good summary of the Christian life to say that we are sold as slaves to sin. That's not our current situation. We're no longer slaves to sin. Chapter 6 tells us we're slaves instead to righteousness. Paul goes on. He says in verses uh, 17 and 18, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He's saying, in essence, hey, nothing good lives in me. That's what this person is crying out. Now, is that a statement that a Christian can say? If we have a look at chapter 5, so go back a little bit further, chapter 5, verse 5, we read this amazingly beautiful uh, verse here. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's simply not possible for the Christian to say, nothing good lives in me when the love of God has been poured into my heart, when His Holy Spirit dwells in my heart. Now, we can say the Spirit lives in us. It's not true that nothing good lives in you. What do we see in verse 19? Paul continues, For I do not do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. He says, I cannot carry it out. I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now that's a problem. That would say that you and I are continually failing if it's true. It would mean that we have an inability to do what's right. Well, what if we have a look at chapter 8? I'd love you to open your Bibles and have a look with me at verses 7 to 9. This is really crucial for us to understand the difference between the then and the now. In chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, this is the key. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Before you had an inability, you couldn't please God. Now you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do something you couldn't do before. You can please God. It's made possible by the Holy Spirit. This is our fourth example. We'll go to uh, chapter 7, verse 23. It says there, I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Paul's saying, I'm trapped. I'm trapped by sin. I'm a prisoner. 
Again, if we let the surrounding passages speak to us, let's see how the Christian life is described. If we look at 8 verse 15, we see, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and in Him we cry, Abba, Father. We are not here described as prisoners. We're not described as slaves. In fact, we are set free to be sons and daughters. That's the language that's used here of the Christian. And so I want to suggest to you what's happening in chapter 7 is three things. Number one, it's primarily about the law. It's actually not written to give voice to your struggle against sin. That's not what it's about. We saw three questions, and each of them was about the law. Secondly, where it says, I delight in the law of God, but I can't do it, that sounds like a Jew. See, the law was their national heritage. It was the thing that set them apart from all the people in the world. So they say, I love the law. I just can't live it out. That sounds like a Jewish person, and the struggle is pre-Christian failure that's outlined. It's someone who's not yet a Christian, longing to do what is good, but failing and falling short. So this cannot be the description of the Christian. If you went with Romans 7 being all about the Christian, we would say, you are slaves to sin. You have nothing good living in you. You have an inability to say no to sin, and you are prisoners of sin. Well, if that was said to you, what do you expect? What would I expect from you as a gathering of people here? Sin it up, wouldn't we? In fact, it's the only thing you can do. In contrast, there's a much better word for us. If we look at these next couple of verses, there's lots of text on the screen. Just bear with me. I want you to hear the contrast between what's just come and the beauty of what Paul is unpacking in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order, and this is amazing, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Can you see the difference here? And so what Paul's saying is then this, something quite radical is happening here, and I want to show you the reversal, okay? Church, you are not slaves to sin. You are instead slaves to righteousness. That's what the Scripture says. You are not the people who have nothing good in you. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You are not those who have an inability to say no to sin. You have a newfound ability by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You are not prisoners, but you have been set free to be sons and daughters of God. Now, if that's true, this, this is the glorious description of the Christian then what do you expect? 
what do we expect? Much better things, don't we? We can expect much better things. You're not going out to play for the Wallabies against the, uh, the All Blacks. You're doing something far better. You're going onto the field of battle empowered by God. Sure, but okay, what does all that mean for me? Let, let me say the most obvious thing, I think. We need to treat sin as the deadly killer it truly is. If we treat sin lightly, we'll die. What do we need to do then? The first thing that we need to do tonight, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you, tonight is a great night to get saved. We need to repent. God, I am sorry for my sin. I want to trust Jesus. Forgive me. Tonight is a great night to get saved. Many of you will have done that before. And I want to say to you, tonight is a great night to repent but to repent as sons and daughters. To repent as sons and daughters. I've spoken to you about this before, so apologies if I'm repeating myself, but what sin will often do, always do, it'll leave us feeling like rubbish, won't it? Condemned, weighed down, worthless. The last person that we want to come to is our holy God. We just feel, I've stuffed it up, I've messed it up again. How could I come back to him? The Bible says that we should come back because we have some little inkling into it as parents. Some of you are parents, some of you not yet. Some of you might have experienced this done well, some of you will have experienced done badly. But in the best case scenario, what will happen is, as a parent, what do I want to see from my kids if they've stuffed up? I don't want them to run away and feel terrible. I don't want them to hide in their room. What I want, what I long for, is them to come and throw themselves into my arm and say, I'm sorry. There will always be forgiveness for that. And, and I'm a fallen father. How much more our heavenly father will welcome you back if you come to him? So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to repent. I want to encourage you to come back as children to your heavenly Father and turn away from sin. There's always forgiveness for the children of God. And if we get a little bit more practical, we've been made slaves to righteousness. So I want to encourage you, walk right. Walk right. Work out how to live in a way that will be pleasing to God and start walking down that path. If there's stuff you're doing right now that you know you shouldn't do, let's see if we can stop it. Turn the path around. Because the Holy Spirit is present, we should ask for His help. He's a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What does He want to work in us? What does He want to do for us? He wants to create holiness in us. He wants to sanctify us, cleanse us through and through. So instead of just going, I hope I don't sin today, what if you said, Holy Spirit? Help me do what I find hard to do. Make me better. Help me. Empower me today. Ask for help. Thirdly, we have a new ability. And I've been practicing this one recently. It's pretty cool. Um, it's pretty radical. I'm about to tell you something really insightful. Try saying no to sin. You know, you could not do that. You could not say that. You could not think that. You could not obsess over that. You could not take that. You could, 
You could not do it. You, church, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, have a fundamental ability you didn't have before. You can say, try it out. It's wacky. How about I don't do that? How about I don't put me first? How about I don't indulge myself? How about I don't choose me? Just try saying no. Wacky. Give it a go. It's pretty cool. Uh, Fourthly, you've been set free, and I just want to encourage everyone here, uh, the path to holiness is open. Uh, Just run down it. Pursue holiness with God. It's beautiful, and He would love to grow you in it. So here's the thing. Paul says in Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Jesus paid for it. The Holy Spirit empowers us. You're slaves to righteousness. You have a new ability. That is what's before us. And I think what you expect changes everything. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we listen to this part of your word tonight. We feel the combat of sin, but maybe we don't know the resources that are at at our disposal. Father, thank you that you live in us in the empowering presence of your Holy Spirit. Father, this week, would you help us to repent where we need to, to get a newfound love for saying no instead of yes to things that we know aren't walking righteously. Father, we might know that you will always welcome us as your children into your loving arms. Help us to walk the path of righteousness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, There is a take on Romans 7. Uh, There are other approaches to Romans chapter 7. I'm obviously pretty convinced on my own one, but, uh, but there you go. Um, are there questions, things that you would like to ask to follow up from tonight? Yeah, it's looking good. Made sense? Amazing. There are literally no follow-up questions, is that right? You don't want to ask me... Something about the favourite food I had in the Philippines or... Oh, great. Isaac, do you really have a question? What was my favourite food in the Philippines? <laughs> Thanks, bud. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. What did we have? We had lots of pork, didn't we, guys? We had amazing pork. What was my favourite food? I don't know. We had some incredible fish. The... the the roast pig. We had a whole roast pig. There we go, Zaki. That'll be good. And we can show you a picture of the head of it, which was attached to the rest of the roast pork when we were eating it. Pretty amazing. Uh, are there any other questions, perhaps related to Romans 7? If not, I will sit down. No, that's great. Thank you. All right. Uh, actually, I won't sit down because I'm leading the service, so that's fantastic. Uh, let me continue. Um, if, can I get you to take out these Caring Connect cards? They look like this. If you've got a Bible, there'll be one folded into your um, Bible, hopefully. Um, if you're new with us tonight, if you put your, new, your uh, email address on this card, uh, you will be able to receive our newsletter that will tell you much more than one thing you should know. You, if you've been coming for a while, we'd love you to be involved in a life group. You can let us know on the card about that. 
we had today, John and Ali ran a new and newish afternoon tea to get people connected. Our next one's a little way away, but you might like to say, invite me. That'd be really great. So I'll give you a chance now to fill those cards in. If everyone can write something on the cards, I'll do my own. That'd be great. Uh, you might like to let us know something we can pray for you this week. Uh, Lauren and Michael and Jeff and I sit down and pray for all of these cards um, through, uh, through the week on Mondays. Uh, if you'd like to have us pray for you, please use the cards to that extent. That would be great. And at the end of the service, they just go in the letterboxes uh, at the back there. So I'll give you a moment to fill those in before we finish up.